Colossians, been doing a series there called Above All. We're taking a little break from that today and, and for a couple of weeks here. And uh, so I'm happy to actually be able to, to talk about uh, this this week. Um, just again, if you're a guest here, we're glad you're here. Thanks for coming. Uh, I know sometimes you've got busy schedules and things are going on, and it's just easy to just stay in bed, but you got up on a well, a beautiful day, right? I mean, welcome to Missouri. If you didn't like the weather last week, stick around. It'll change this week. Imagine it'll be different next week. Who knows? Uh, but but it's glad, I'm glad to have you guys here. Um, we just celebrated a change of the year. We went from 2013 to 2014. Most of us probably took some time to kind of reflect back to last year, over the year, what things went well, what things didn't go well. And then you thought ahead to what some things you want to change this year. I typically do that. Uh, actually, through the two weeks of Christmas break and all that, I actually didn't do that so well. Uh, I didn't do it at all, quite honestly. Uh, I don't feel too badly about that, but um, I do feel a little bad because it's like, well, what's going to happen this year? I don't know. We'll find out when we get there, right? But that's the way we can approach life sometimes. We think, well, we got to look ahead. Maybe we've got to uh, figure out some things. We'll make some, um, you know, we'll make some choices about how we're going to live this coming year. Make some resolutions. How many of you made resolutions? Raise your hand. Well, a few of you did. Okay, not as many as I would have thought. Okay, that's good. That's good, I think. Um, we'll see. You guys aren't have any aspirations for being better people this year, uh, so that's interesting. Okay, now I know the crowd I'm working with. Um, <clears throat> no, we do that. We, we, even if you don't, like, seriously, like, write them down, we all have these, like, aspirations. Maybe they don't hit us at the beginning of the year. They hit us at some point in life where we look at our lives and we think, I need to be a better husband. I need to be a better wife. I need to be a better student. I need to be better with my finances. I need to try harder to organize my life. Everything's a mess. I mean, you guys, we can all relate to that, right? We've got some things in our lives we just look at and they're messy and, and we think, man, we just need to, we need to fix these. And oftentimes the reason why we do that is <clears throat> because we, we feel bad about ourselves. Maybe it's because the reason why we feel bad about ourselves is because we want to be able to present to people uh, a better us than, than what we really are. I mean, we, we most always do that. We're, we're living before other people. We're living our lives as if the opinions of other people really are what really counts in life. And we do that quite often. It's like, why do I want to lose 20 pounds this year just so I can fit into my clothes? Well, why do I want to fit into my clothes better? Well, because I want people to think of me as attractive in appearance or whatever. We are, are doing it for others in one sense, but actually we're doing it so that they will have a better opinion about us. And unfortunately what that ends up doing is it ends up crippling us quite a bit. We don't realize how we're being crippled by coming under the conditions of what we believe others have toward us. A guy named Jerry Rice, I don't know if you're a guy, you probably, if you grew up in the 80s and 90s, you probably know who Jerry Rice is. Jerry Rice is like a premier uh, receiver in the game of football. Uh, if you watch football at all, Jerry Rice's name is going to pop up occasionally because he was an amazing receiver. He was a, such an amazing receiver. In 2010, he actually uh, got to go to Canton, Ohio and become uh, part of an, an elite few people. Uh, he, he's one of these guys who was in, inducted into the uh, Hall of Fame. Uh, for if you didn't know that, Canton, Ohio is the home of the National Football Hall of Fame. Uh, just a piece of information. He gets up there in 2010, and he begins to make his speech. And not very long into his speech, he gave the secret of his success. 
And I found it very intriguing where he placed the secret of his success. I'll just listen real carefully uh, to, to what Jerry Rice said. Um, he says this, I, I didn't want to let my father down. This fear was the engine to my success. He lived his whole life. He played his whole football career under this one thing. I have to be a success in the eyes of my father. I cannot let him down. And he even says it that way. It, this fear was the engine that drove my success. Fear of others can really drive the success in our lives. It can also drive the failure in our lives. Both. It can do both things. It can have this effect of wearing us down because we're trying to live under the expectations of other people. We're, we actually are, are pretty addicted to conditionality. You know what I mean by conditionality? If this happens, then this happens. If I behave in this way, then people will accept me. If I do these things the right way, then I know that these people will love me. If I do this, then this. Or maybe we flip it because we're, we're not used to having an un unconditional kind of love and we say, well, actually, we live this way toward others. If they will do this, that, or the other, I will love them. If they don't do it, if they don't perform well, then... I withhold my affections. I withhold my love for them. The thing is, we, we flip that not just onto one another. We flip that onto God. We believe that God basically, he loves those who take care of themselves. He loves those who perform well. He loves the good people. He hates the bad people. And, of course, we're all the good people, right? We're the good ones he loves. Those people, they're the ones he doesn't love, right? It's somebody else. We don't usually try to flip that onto ourselves, but we live with this kind of gnawing, God is very impressed with my performance, and he's not per per very impressed if I don't perform well. He doesn't really like me. He doesn't really want to be around me. I've lived with that. A lot of my life has been under a performance grid mindset. It's like God accepts me if I do poorly or well. If I do poorly, he doesn't really want to be around me. He doesn't like being with me very much. And we figure that God, he has to be like us. We reflect the way we are, our conditionality, and our, our whole lives lived with this sense of condition, performance-based living. We flip that onto God and say, well, that's the way God is. God has to, he only loves those who can take care of themselves. Now, this guy Enoch that we just read about, that Annette read about, he's an interesting character. We just don't read a whole lot about him. I think there's maybe three sections of Scripture that even talk about him. Uh, there's one in like Hebrews that talk about his faith a bit. He was like a prophetic guy. Uh, in Jude, there's a little snippet of uh, something that apparently he said or that was recorded by him. But here in Genesis, when we look at his life, it's, it's a pretty small section of Scripture. It's just a few verses but we notice about this guy is he lives a really long time, right? 365 years. I tried to, like, manipulate that into our 365 days this year, but I couldn't come up with anything. Sorry. Uh, it just doesn't work out that nicely. 365 years. But the thing I noticed about him was his first 65 years. Is there anything impressive? I mean, if you've got your Bible there, you can look at it. Is there anything impressive or noteworthy in the first 65 years most of our lifetimes, right? I mean, we hope, I hope I get to live to be 65, okay? Is there very, anything very impressive about Enoch's life to that point? Just look at the Bible there. What do you see? What's noteworthy about his life up to age 65? He has a son. <laughs> That's about it. There is nothing noteworthy about him. 
Is he being faithful to God? Well, it's unclear, but it says for sure that at some point something changes, that he, he does become faithful to God. But in those first 65 series, it's pretty clear that nothing impressive is going on with him. He's, he's not living in a way that, that the Bible even says needs to be commented on. Maybe you are here today, maybe you're 15, maybe you're 25, 35, 75, 85 years old. I don't know how old people are here. Maybe you feel like you're living in Enoch's first 65 years. There's nothing really noteworthy about your life. If there is, it's like the kind of stuff you're hoping that if the, on the annals of history, as they look out uh, over the past in your life, that actually, just like with Enoch, it seems to be kind of swept under the rug. There's nothing really written about it. You're kind of hoping that nothing is written about the first 15, 25, 35 years of your life as well because it's not very impressive. Or you've done some things <clears throat> that you thought, hey, this is pretty bad stuff. I'm pretty ashamed of my life up to this point. Now, if that's you, then here's, here's the great news, is that there is a point of change. We all look forward to knowing that there, whatever it is about our lives that we're living under, this real sense of pressure, this real sense of living under the conditions that other people put on me or the conditions that I put on myself, there's a real sense of pressure that's put upon us. And what's great about the story of Enoch is there's a point at which, and it's a great point, when there's a transition. Today you're here, and what I, I love about being together like this is that this meeting is it's like a point for us. You may be here and you're thinking, I'm not even sure why I showed up today. Maybe it's you know, like your regular behavior. You just do it every week. You just show up. Or maybe it's the first time you've been here. And you just kind of think, well, I came because somebody invited me. Here's, here's what we know about the Bible. It says that, that, actually, that God actually orders our steps. He's the one. We make our plans, but he's the one who directs our paths. And I have a real confidence today that you're here on purpose, that you're not just here by accident. You're not just a flotsam and jetsam just kind of floating around in the ocean of life. God has directed you to be here for a purpose today. There's a point to it, just like there's a point in Enoch's life. And this point comes at the birth of a son, his son Methuselah. I had to look up the name. I wasn't sure. I was hoping, praying, God, please let there be something significant to the name Methuselah. You know, Methuselah, like, was the oldest guy who ever lived, like 900 and, I forget what it is, 68, 69 years, whatever. Somebody knew it. Wow. Good for you. Bible scholar. Okay. Uh, now, the, the thing about it, Methuselah, was, you know what Methuselah means? It means dart. You know darts? You know, like, you throw darts at a dartboard, and they have a very sharp end, and they stick in the wall kind of a thing. All right? His name means dart. It's, it's a very sharp and pointed thing. What his birth does is it points us ahead to the birth of someone who had a very sharp and pointed life. If you looked at the Luke chapter 2, what you would see is that there's this great scripture about Jesus. Jesus, it says, uh, as, as this one uh, person is saying to his mom, he says this. He says that, um, sorry, Luke chapter 2 verse um, 35 a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts and hearts of many would be revealed. There's a point of our lives. Jesus is the point of that life. He comes in and he really pierces our lives. Jesus, his life on this earth, the words that he said, there's like always two categories that you can look at. Jesus' words do one thing, they pierce. Okay, they do another thing, they heal. It's like, Enoch was living in this bubble of a life that he 
was ashamed of. He didn't like it. He, it's not very noteworthy. But then there's the point that comes in. And Jesus is that point. He's the one who comes in like a dart. He pierces into the hearts and lives of us. And I love that. I love that, that there is a point. There is something that comes in that bursts my bubble. There's something that comes in that wounds, but he also heals. Jesus brings conviction, but he also brings acquittal. That's the ministry of Jesus. If you want to put it in two big pieces, that's what Jesus came to do. He came first to, to puncture, to point out, but he also came to bring healing. He came to bring restoration. When we come to Jesus, often our hearts are convicted about sin. We're pierced through because of maybe how bad our lives are. I don't know about you. I've had things in my life that I have been ashamed of. I would just assume not very many people know about them. And so you can come to God because of that. You can come to Jesus because of those sins and think, man, I need some forgiveness. I, I did all these bad things, and now I need to be forgiven. And that's absolutely right and good. But I mean, we figure, we're, we feel bad, we've got to have forgiveness. But the thing is, here's what the point of Jesus, what he points out to us is even our best deed on our best day with the best attitude we could muster still is sinful, still falls way short. It's still meaningless. It still is a mindset that says that God, you are a God of conditionality. If I will do this, then you will love me. We still have that mindset. What doing good things does, the blindness that we have to them is that we think we're doing something for God. And what ends up happening is we're doing it so that we can keep God pushed away from us. Our good deeds cause us to say, I don't really need a Savior. But the Bible says to us this. The whole point of the Scriptures is this. Hey, guys, you need a Savior. The Bible is not describing so much the life of the Christian as it's describing for us who Jesus is and what he has come to do. It's not like a recipe book to help us to live the Christian life. It's basically this. It's a revelation of who Jesus is so that we'll see how bad off we really are and how great Jesus really is. Maybe you don't view life that way. It's a dangerous thing, actually, to, to view and say, I can earn my way somehow into God's graces, into his presence. We try to convince him we're good enough, we're strong enough, and gosh darn it, we're just likable enough that he should accept us based on our own good merit. We're addicted to conditions. I'll do my part, God. You do your part. If I live this way, then God, somehow you're in obligation to me to give me the life that I've always wanted. We try to place God under obligations. What pierces our hearts is that we discover that there are no good people. None. The Bible's clear about it. There are none righteous, not even one. That includes me. That includes you. I am not a righteous guy. I am not that guy who, like, I've done something to impress God with my good works and my good behavior, and now he's given me. No. I'm in the same boat we're all in. We're all in need of a Savior. I mean, think about it. If we're not all that bad, and we can actually do things to impress God and make ourselves 
right before God, why did Jesus die? Why did he go to the cross? Why did he have his flesh ripped off of his body and nails pierced through his hands? Why did he have the most life-giving relationship that anyone could ever experience, his relationship with God the Father? Why would he be allowed to go through that and to say uh, that where God's, he says, God, why have you forsaken me? If, we're, if we can make it up ourselves, if we can do it ourselves, then the cross of Jesus makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. I've been pastoring quite some time, um, off and on for 25 or so years. I've been in ministry helping people through things. And, and I'll often have people come up to me and, and they're feeling bad. You know, it's like, oh, you know, God shouldn't, he shouldn't love me. I've not done anything to deserve God's love or his affection toward me. And I've been around situations where I've seen people kind of pat them, you know, on the back. Oh, there, there. It's okay. You're not. Here's what I say. Yeah? You're right. You haven't. You haven't done anything. To de- it's not about you deserving. It's not about your performance. It's not about you doing. It's about what Jesus has done. It's about his performance, not mine. It's about his performance, not yours. It's about his acceptability, not yours. That has nothing to do with your worth. It has to do with Jesus' worth. Yeah? I mean, if I can do it, then I don't need Jesus. And I desperately, desperately, desperately need Jesus. The great news of the gospel is that there are none righteous, but that through Christ, actually, we become the righteousness of Christ in God. He makes that happen. There's nothing I do. It's what He does in in me. Our sins and our trespasses, our own righteous uh, life that we try to live, the Apostle Paul, this guy who, who really tried to live a very religious life for a long time, I mean, he, would, he, like, he made at one point, he wasn't trying to brag. He was just saying, look, if you guys want to put all your trust and your ability to please God, let me, shed, let me just shed a little light on that. Let me show you all the religious things that I did to try to impress God. And let me tell you a little bit about how impressed God was like that. He says, um, he says basically, uh, he says, look, <laughs> it's like a bucket of dung, to put it nicely. All those righteous things that I tried to do to impress God, it's like going out to the middle of a cow field, picking up a bunch of cow chips, put them in a bucket, and presenting them, saying, here, God, what do you think? (laughs) Yeah, that's what it's like. Your righteous deeds are like a bucket of poo to God. My righteous deeds, that's what they're like. They have no merit in them whatsoever. But when we come to this point where we realize that our self-righteousness, the good things we've done, the bad things, those things, they're not what qualifies us, but the good work that Christ did on the cross, that's what qualifies us to stand before God. He takes our sins, our self-righteousness, He takes those all, and it says He separates them as far as east is from west. I think I got my directions right. That's east, that's west. Okay, as far as east is from west. If you look at a globe, east and west never touch. You can't be going east long enough that you finally start going west. Now, if you go north, you'll come eventually to where you go south. If you go east, you never stop going east. If you go west, you never stop going west. They just keep going in directions straight out from one another. There is no meeting of those two directions. He says, look, as far as east is from west, that's how far I take all of your self-righteousness, 
all of your unrighteousness, I take those as far as east is from west. They're no longer connected to you. He says, I, I take all those things, and there's this, there's this trench down in, uh, it's on, off the coast of Japan. It's called the Marianas Trench. Have anybody ever heard of the Marianas Trench? It's the deepest place that in the world that a man has ever, like, figured out, you know, how deep it is. It's like miles and miles and miles and miles beneath the sea, and then once you hit the bottom of the sea, it's miles and miles and miles and miles down into the ground. He says, take all your sins, all your self-righteousness, all those things you've tried to do to impress me, I take those, I bury them down at the bottom of the Marianas Trench so that they'll just rot there. They have no connection to you anymore whatsoever. This is good news for us. The pressure to perform is off. The pressure to try to impress God with your life is completely off. Why? Because Jesus has completely pleased God the Father. The conditions are removed. The conditionality that we felt toward God, he says, no, in Christ, that conditionality is gone. It's no longer if then. It is only then. I love you. I'm for you. I'm with you. Now that sting remains in us. We feel the sting of that as long as we are trying to depend on our efforts to try to please God. We think that grace can't really change our broken and bent hearts. We think that in order to change, what really has to happen is conditions have to be laid in there pretty solidly. I need some law. I need some rules. I need some regulation. That's what's actually going to change my wayward heart. I need to have those things in place, right? That's the way we always go back to. It's like, wait, 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 grace? I'm not sure. Does it have enough teeth to actually make my heart change? Let me give you a couple of stories from the Bible. One is the story of Zacchaeus. You know, Zacchaeus was a wee little man. A wee little man was he, all right? He was small not just in stature, but his heart was like shrunk and small as well. He was a thief. He was what they call the chief of tax collectors. Based, and I've, I've talked about this not too long ago, so I won't spend a lot of time into it. But he was the guy that everybody in town hated. Zach, nobody liked Zach. And the reason they didn't like Zach is because he had robbed them all blind. Even the robbers, the tax collectors, he had even robbed them. I mean, he was really a low-down character. They're in the public square. He climbs up in this tree just so he can see Jesus passing by. And when he does that, he makes himself a spectacle to everybody. And Jesus does something that I think is fascinating. Worst guy in town. Everybody hates him. He doesn't point up there and say, Zacchaeus, you need to come down right now. You need to apologize to everybody. And you need to empty your pockets and pay everybody back that you've stolen from. He doesn't do that. He doesn't say, uh, hey, Zach, let's go to the back alley. I want to chat with you for just a minute. In front of God and everybody, he says, I must spend time with you. Dude, i got to hang out with you. Let's go. we got to get to your house. Let's have dinner. So he goes. He goes to Zach, Zach's house, and he eats dinner there. And at the end of the experience, it's not clear what's being said there. People were pointing the finger saying, come on, God, Jesus, what are you doing? You're supposed to spend time with the good people. You're spending time with the bad people. We know the outcome is this. Zacchaeus, he stands up, and he says, look, I've cheated a lot of people. Here's what I want to do. I'm going to give away like half my possessions. I'm just going to give half of it to the poor. The rest of it that I have, what I'm going to do is I'm going to pay everybody I've cheated, plus I'm going to add on 400% to that. Grace made a radical change in this guy's life. If Jesus would have applied the law and said, now, 
Zacchaeus, here's what you need to do. You need to pay everybody back. The law says 20% over. So like if I take, you know, $10 from you, then I got to <clears throat> add $2 to that and pay you back, right? Jesus doesn't do that. He doesn't apply law to him. He applies grace. He says, I love you. I'm for you. I'm with you. And Zacchaeus' response is way beyond what the law could ever require. Which is stronger, love that's unconditional, grace, or the law? Which is stronger? Paul, <clears throat> the apostle, the guy I quoted a little bit earlier, he gets, uh, he, Jesus confronts him in this way. He, he does knock him off his donkey. It looks like hey, he's going to hit him with the law. What he says to him is, your life is going to be like a shining example to everybody. Yeah, you're going to go through some hard times. But he doesn't apply the law to him. Here's what he says to him. In essence, he says this, look, what I, if I apply the law to you, here's what has to happen. You have to die right now. Because a murderer, which is what he was, should have been stoned to death right there and then, should have lost his life immediately in front of the judge. But he stands in front of the judge, and the judge does not condemn him to death. He gives him life. Paul's response to that is not small. It's huge. He goes around the entire region. He pushes out as far as he physically can go to tell everybody about this great love and grace. If Jesus would have applied law to him, he would have been dead. But he gave him grace and he gave him unconditional love, something that Paul had never, ever earned, couldn't earn. And Paul's response was a life given in service to the king. Which is stronger, unconditional love or rules, laws, regulations? Grace. Unconditional love. If you say, wait, 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 people will they'll go on sinning. Yeah, I know there's the potential of that. But when people, when I have not understood grace properly, when I have not thought highly about the love and grace that God has for me, that's when I go into sin. That's when I go into my worst behaviors, my worst attitudes, when I realize Excuse me, when I fail to realize how great God's love for me is, how great His grace is for me, that's when I go into sin. It's when I try to put rules into my life and build structures into my life because actually I don't trust the grace of God. That's when I go into self-righteousness. I get so proud of my works and how well I'm doing, my performance, and my eyes come off Jesus. Here's what Paul wrote. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who does what? Who loves me and gives himself for me. The law's requirement is much less than love's compelling power. Christian maturity is not growing away from grace it is growing deeper and deeper into it it's not growing independent from God trying to now do things more and more on my own because I'm stronger I'm better than I used to be it is a deeper and deeper acknowledgement and dependence that I have to have the love and grace of Jesus in my life let me give you an example I was just this was pretty fresh this morning as we're worshiping it's like this thing about foundations of life. When you're first building a house, and, you, and actually it came to mind because there's a friend of mine in Kansas City that he just like had, they had to get rid of their house and they lost a ton of money. 
And the reason they had to do that was not because of anything above the foundation, but it was the foundation itself that was faulty. See, the foundation is, is the first thing laid. It's got to, it's got to go deep and strong. And it doesn't very, I mean, most people don't drive up to a house and go, oh, wow, look at that foundation. Isn't that impressive, right? But with a good foundation, it's like you don't recognize how good a good foundation is and how important it is, especially if you're going to build like a multi-layered house, you know, two or three you know, stories tall. The foundation, at first, it's like you can put everything on it, and it's like well, it's not that big a deal. It can handle it, sustain it. Then you put the second level on, whoa, wait a minute. You've you got to make sure that foundation's strong. But the third level, whoa, whoa, whoa. So you've got to make sure that the foundation can handle your life. The Bible tells us this. There is no greater foundation that can be laid but Jesus. He's the foundation of our lives. The higher you build that house up, guess what? The more you have to be depending on that foundation, not less. Right? First layer, easy. Don't have to depend much on I mean, so when you first become a Christian, you think, I'm depending on Jesus. But then years later, it's like, no, you've got to, you've got to realize, no, it's a deep foundation. I've got to depend more upon him. And as you grow more, oh, I've got to depend more on him. It's not going away from him. It's growing to depend on Christ, his grace, his love that's unconditional more and more and more. So we see this thing in Enoch. We see that there is this growing dependence on God in his life. Enoch walked faithfully with God for 300 years. That's what it says. That's impressive, right? Uh, yeah, that's impressive. Just the fact that he lived 300 years. But then it says that he did it for 300 years. I, I could be tempted to think about Enoch as a hero. It's like, man, this dude is just like rocking it, right? I mean, I could be tempted to do that. But the reality is that his faithfulness for 300 years is nothing compared to the faithfulness of an eternal God and Jesus, who faithfully lived, never sinning, never once having a failure, never once having a lapse, his faithfulness to us is eternal and never failing. To look at Enoch's life and say 300 years, yeah, that's impressive, but here's the deal. Why is he faithful? It's because he has a faithful God who is eternally faithful, who never lets down, who never lets go. That's the reason why. We shouldn't ever get too impressed by some human person's uh, ability to be faithful to whatever extended period of time in their lives. I'll be grateful if I could be faithful for three hours, let alone 300 years. But even at that, 300 years is nothing in light of eternity. Nothing in light of the eternal love of God that that long period of his life looks like. It points to a faithfulness in Jesus that is eternal. He will never let you down. He will never let you go. He will never be unfaithful to you, no matter how unfaithful you might be to him. Paul writes about that, this same guy. He writes and says, look, even if I am unfaithful to him, he cannot be unfaithful to me. He just can't. He will not. And it's this faithfulness and trusting in the unfailing, undying love of God that actually supports Enoch. It's the faithfulness of love and love of Jesus that supports you and me. Peter was a guy who tried to make his love for God support him. He said to Jesus, I will never, ever deny you, right? What happens a few hours later? He's running for the hills, denying any connection to Jesus whatsoever. 
Why? Because he thought his love for God was what sustained him. He failed to remember, no, it's God's love for me that sustains me. I want us this year to just root ourselves down deeply into that. It is not my love. It's not my faithfulness that sustains me and keeps me. And Jude, the writer there, he writes, he says, to the one who is able to keep you from falling. It's my dependence upon him, not the dependence on my love for him. I want us to be able this year to sing this kind of hymn. It's a hymn that says, Take my life and let it be, consecrated Lord to thee. Take my moments and my days. Let them flow in endless praise. That's the way we live our lives. It's receiving from him and letting our lives flow back in endless praise. This guy, John Flavel, uh, he's a Puritan, which Puritans have taken hard knocks. You know, they always seem like, you know, uptight guys, and they were pretty starched and all that. But here's, listen to this. He says, the soul is its, in its healthiest frame and temper when it is most overwhelmed by the love of Christ. When it's most overwhelmed by the love of Christ, that's when it's the healthiest. That's when it's the strongest. Your soul is most nourished, most satisfied. When we're most satisfied in Him, that's when life has the most satisfaction for us. He goes on to say this, Christ is the very essence of all delights and pleasures, the very soul and substance of them. As all the rivers are gathered into the ocean, okay, picture that, Mississippi, Missouri, they all flow down, they hit into the ocean or you know, whatever ocean you want to, I mean, whatever river you want to look at, you just picture that. All these pleasures, all these delights, they flow into one ocean, meeting as the waters of the world. So Christ is that ocean in which all true delights and pleasures meet. Treasuring Christ, delighting in Him, living our lives in front of Him instead of living our lives in front of of everyone else. Living our lives as if his opinion is the one that counts most. Anyone else's opinion takes much, much a backseat to his. Do you feel condemned? Do you feel like, oh, my performance isn't very good? Then stop. look at the performance of Christ. Quit reflecting on your bad performance. Look to his good performance. That's what saves you. That's what delivers you from condemnation. That's what sets you free to be able to live. Jesus as being our great treasure, when I look at these things, it's like, what, what am I aiming for? What am I aiming for for us, for me? It's not that I should be sadder about my sin. I should be broken about it, absolutely. But what he wants us to do is to realize how much joy, how much pleasure is actually found in God. God's not trying to take pleasure away from us. He's trying to give us the highest, greatest pleasure and treasure of life. I want us to grow in delight and satisfaction. What causes Enoch to live faithfully 300 years is, the, is not his never-ending love for God, but God's never-ending love for him. Our affections grow because we're, he's faithful toward us. So the questions should start coming into our hearts. I hope these statements 
what I feel like as I was typing them out yesterday, I just I started getting kind of fired up. I'm like, okay, uh, we see so much of Christ, what he has done for me, and my, my life before him is done, not doing. But it's like I lean forward, and when I hear these things about the love of Jesus and how much he is for me, it makes me kind of lean forward. It makes my ear perk up. It's like, how do I expand my soul? How do I expand my heart and my mind? How do I open up my life to more and more to receive this kind of love? Does that question come into your mind? I hope it does. I want us in 2014 to really just kind of let our hearts and minds be expanded. How can I know this love more? How can I enjoy this all-satisfying treasure more and more? The Bible points to the solution of Christ. He's outside of ourselves that deal with the problems inside of us. Our focus is always on his performance, not our own. Like Peter trying to walk on water, right? Where does he foul up? It's when he takes his eyes off the performance of Jesus and puts it on the performance of himself. He sinks. That's what happens with us. We almost always get our eyes, our performance, Oh, and we're down again. Keep our eyes focused on Jesus. I want to help us a little bit of how to do that. Take out your communication cards. Man, just stay where you guys are for just a second. I've got a long, little longer time on this, okay? How do we position ourselves so that we can regularly have kind of the gospel preached into our souls? Because the tendency for all of us is to, to fall back in con- conditionality, right? Oh, I haven't done well this week. I can't go into God's presence. Or, wow, I've done really good this week. God will be so impressed to see me, right? We always fall into the conditionality. How do we stay away from that? How do we allow the gospel to see life through gospel lenses? How do we see the word of God through gospel lenses so that we're always having the gospel preached, his love, his acceptance, his grace for us at all times in every way he comes after us with such love? How do we get that into our hearts Again, Christian maturity is not growing to depend on the Savior less. It's growing to realize we need a Savior more. I don't need Jesus less tomorrow than I needed Him today. I need Him more. I don't need Him less today than yesterday. I need Him more. There are three things on your communication card. That they, they're things like this. They, it says to, uh, we want to increase our, our frequency. We want to increase our intensity. We want to increase our time. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm a coach. I had a PE class in high school that taught me those three things. If you want to gain fitness, if you want your life to be healthier, here's three ways you do it with exercise. You increase the frequency. Instead of doing it one day a month, (laughs) you do it three days a week, right? One day a week. Okay, if you do it one day a week, do it three days a week. If you do it three, do it five. If you want to increase your capacity for life in fitness terms, you increase the frequency. If you want to increase it, or that's one way. Another way is you can increase in intensity. So let's say you work out for 30 minutes in one block of time. Instead of getting your heart rate up to 100 beats per minute, you work harder, get your heart rate up to 120. You increase the intensity. You understand that? Okay. Or you increase the duration, the amount of time. So in, instead of doing 30 minutes, you do 45. Instead of doing 45, you do an hour, whatever. All right, those are the principles. Now you can go out and be healthy people for the rest of your lives because you know those three things. If you want to increase your fitness, you increase your frequency or your intensity or your time, your duration. But if you do all three of those at the same time, you'll kill yourself. So don't do that. I want you to live a good long time. Now, 
So when I think about expanding my soul, when I think about depending more and more on Jesus, when I think about my life not trying to perform for him, but actually receiving more and more of his love and grace toward me, I still think about those three principles. I still think about frequency, intensity, and time. And then I think about it in like two kind of categorical ways. If you're a note taker, this might be helpful to you. When, when I want to increase my capacity to be in God's presence, I, I usually do it in one of two ways. I either do it like personally, I'm on my own, wherever it is in the morning, like in my living room, on the couch, reading my Bible, or whatever, okay, it's personal or it's corporate. It's done together. It's done in a, like this. It's, a, it's the church gathering together. It may be in smaller groups, two or three. It may be in groups of 10 to 15. It may be in groups of 200 I mean, or 2,000. It doesn't matter, but... It's corporate. It's done with others. Two ways, personal and corporate. I use personal for a reason, not private. Now, here's the difference. Private means it's all for me. It's all about me. Personal means it is for me, but it's actually for others. My personal life, I can share with you. My private life, not so much. Okay? You understand that. My personal things, experiences that I have, I can share personal experiences I'm probably not going to share private things that are just between me and my wife. That's probably not going to happen, right? And it doesn't need to happen. When I talk about corporate, I'm talking about two or three or more. I'm saying it's something that we are doing together. All right, we talk a lot about corporate. Let me just punch out a couple of things here. Week after week, we challenge one another, being together, serving together, giving together, worshiping together. We do this in these bigger meetings. We do this in community groups. We do this in even fire teams, smaller twos or threes. Now, that's one I just want to take about 15 seconds and describe for you. These are not like highly organized, these fire teams. So if you're a person, you're saying, I need other people around me, just one or two that I can trust and that I can kind of build a relationship with and, and grow together with, great. I'm not going to try to put you in a group with people. You find some friends. You get together. You go with the scriptures. You learn to receive more and more of the love of grace in God. Now, we have some ways we can help you with that, but we're not like trying to structure all that. The next thing is groups of 10 to 15 people, community groups. Now, with your communication card, I want you to do this. If, you, if you're part of a community group, fine. You're probably not, that's not going to change much. And, and so, it, but if, if not, on that card, there's a place down toward the bottom. It just says community group. If you would just take and just, if you want to be a part of one, one way that you can increase uh, your, um, uh, the, the frequency of being together is simply by checking off that box. You can start meeting with people every week to build up and strengthen your faith in Christ. Okay? And even if you're part of that, if you want to check that off, I'll look at them and fine, that's great. No problem. All right? These are ways that we do it together. We do life together. We serve one another. If you want to be part of a service team, guess what? There's a chance to do that. You can look at the communication card. There's lots of ways you can serve. We have people that do uh, bagels and coffee each week just to help people feel welcomed and, and all that. And so you could be a part of that. You can see Teresa uh, Holtz back here. Well, she's doing something else. But uh, she's probably making the coffee right now. And so you can do that. You can be a part of that team or, or another team. You can serve together. What, why? Here's why. Jesus says, I came to serve, not be served. When we engage in serving, Jesus is like inviting us and saying, I want to have you come up into greatness with me. Come on. This is what it's like to be great. We serve one another. 
generosity. God doesn't want us to be generous because he's trying to wrestle money out of our hands, grubby little hands. He's inviting us to say, look, be like me. God is a generous God. He sends rain on good people and bad people. He is indiscriminately generous. (laughs) It just provokes me, the generosity of God. People that I would just not even give a second thought to, God says, no, I'm providing for them. So he invites me in generosity. Hey, you be like me. You come and enjoy fellowship with me through being generous. And it's a way that my soul expands and opens up to God and sees his generosity toward me all the time. Community groups, we get together. We preach the gospel to ourselves, to each other. We're communicating on these lines. It's not about what you're doing. It's about what God's doing in you and through you. Those are starting up soon. We'll start up in a couple of weeks here. There was a story just to, on this thing about corporate. There was a story about a young man. He's, he's sitting and he's con- conversing with an old friend. And the old friend, they're, they're sitting around the fire. And the young guy says, look, I just feel like my passion for Jesus is waning. I feel like it's just getting colder and colder. I'm getting tired of people at church. They're pain in the rear end to me. I'm just sick of it. And so the, the old man just deftly takes up tongs and he reaches down, he grabs a coal out of the fire and he just sets it off to the side there and just kind of lets the guy talk. And pretty soon the guy just looks at his old friend and says, so what do I need to do to like warm my affections for Jesus? And the guy just said, picked up the coal and he stuck it right back in the fire. He said, look, here's the deal. When you're pulling away from this communal corporate life together, what you're doing is you're pulling away from the fire of God. You're pulling yourself out of this place where you're ignited and igniting others. If you want to stay hot and passionate toward God, you've got to be with the people of God. I think that's when we talk about our corporate meetings together, our community groups and our uh, fire teams and smaller groups together, it's like that. Do you want to grow in passion for you want your heart to be swelling with the love of God, then be together. The other thing we do is, is personal. It's the things that we do more or, or less on our own. And it's, it's stuff like reading the Bible and, and praying. And I know, I mean, like doing that, it's like maybe you're like, you know, you started January 1, you thought I'll try to do this plan of reading, and now it's the 12th and you've already failed like several times. Whatever. Okay, I, I understand that. I do that. I mean, I think... I've done pretty well over the last few days, but my performance I'm not worried about. I just didn't do, okay? But here's the thing. I put myself regularly in, in the opportunity to be able to hear from God by prayer, by reading, by singing and worshiping Him. Those are personal things that I do. In fact, this message basically came out of a time when I was just reading the Bible, like, you know, like two or three days after the first of the year, I read about Enoch, and I just jotted this note down about this guy and going, wow. He lived his life before God. How can I help us live our lives before God? Frequency, intensity, duration. Do you read the Bible once in a while? Would you pick it up and say, I'll read it once or twice a week? And just take and just, I mean, there's a seven-minute way to do that. It's just like you take two minutes and you just give thanks to God and you appreciate Him. And then you take two or three more minutes and you read a a small section of Scripture. And then you close your Bible and you spend another couple of minutes just saying, thanks, God, for speaking to me today. And you try to walk away with just one thing that you feel like God's spoken to you. What that does is that it increases the capacity of your soul to be able to receive more and more and more of the love of God. 
If you do it once or twice a week, would you say, well, I'll increase the frequency or two or three times? Or maybe I'll increase my duration from seven minutes to 15. See, the, the way our hearts expand and grow to receive this is by simply applying those fitness things, frequency, intensity, time. I'll spend more time with intensity. How do you increase in intensity? Intensity, I'd like to just say, is it's like focus. I'm focusing my heart, my attention. I'm eliminating distractions. I'm wanting to get into God's presence. The giant redwoods in uh, California there, you guys seen pictures of those? I love them. I mean, when I was a kid, I remember watching, you know, looking at National Geographic and seeing cars like drive through these huge car trees. I mean, they cut holes in them so big, one tree, it's got a hole in it that a car can literally drive through. It's amazing. Well, guess what? Over time, those trees, they started dying. You know why they started dying? Because the foot traffic, the car traffic, were pressing down on the roots and killing off the trees. They had to, like, stop the traffic, put fences around, allow there to be the, the softening of the soil so that those trees could again be drawing life from the ground. Our personal times with God, reading the Scriptures and praying, are like that. I have to build a fence around my life that says you can't tread on this piece of ground because if, if I don't, here's what happens. It's like my life gets squashed down and my time with God keeps getting pushed back, pushed back, and I just feel there's no life coming up through me anymore. It crushes us. Would you take time? Just say, I'm going to put some fences around my life. I'm just going to increase the frequency, intensity, and duration of my times with God. Why? Because he loves you and he wants to spend time with you. And he has made a way for us to do that. He's given us such opportunity today. Let's have the band uh, come up. Growing to stand before the Lord, knowing his love and acceptance for us that we're not, he's not like trying to get us to perform. We're not a circus act. He wants us to expand our hearts to receive more and more of his love. Let's stand up together. In this, in this moment, here's just the next couple of minutes, here's what's going to happen. We're going to sing, uh, Bill and the band, they're going to help us with doing that. And as we do that, there's a couple of things that will happen. The communication, the car that you've been kind of working on these last few minutes, the ushers are going to uh, bring a basket and, and pass it by, and you can definitely put that communication card in there. Because I know some of you made some decisions about how you're going to do some things here in the near future. And then if you've come prepared today to, to give, to be generous, great. There's an opportunity to put your, you know, your money in that basket as well. We give not because God's trying to get from us, but because we know in giving it just expands our soul. It helps us to relate to God as a generous, generous God. And so this is just an opportunity to do that. If you're a guest here, we expect absolutely no money from you today. Please feel free to not give. But if you're part of us and you feel like today's the day you can do that, just place that in the basket as it goes by. And then we'll have a time that we, we pray together. So Bill's going to lead us out in singing now.